Welcome to the Talking Code Podcast. I'm Josh Smith. And I'm Venkat Dinavahi. And we're having short interviews with experts that help you decode what developers are saying. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to go to TalkingCode.com and sign up for our mailing list. We send out links to new interviews along with exclusive content just for our subscribers. We're here with Jeff Patton, the author of the book User Story Mapping, and we're going to talk today about user story mapping. How are you doing today, Jeff? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me here. Well, thanks for coming on. So I'd like to start off with a really simple definition and ask you what a user story is. So that's a challenge for me. I uh, I learned stories on my first XP project in 2000, 2001. People forget that stories came out of extreme programming, not Scrum. And I feel like stories kind of went completely sideways from the very beginning. People look at stories as another way of writing requirements. And I spent a lot of time reminding people that stories aren't a different way of documenting. They're a different way of working. Stories get their name from how they're supposed to be used, not how they're supposed to be written. And when you call something a story or when you use stories, what it means is we're making making an agreement with each other to talk through things. That instead of me handing off some document to you or handing off a story card to you, even one with good acceptance criteria, um, using a story means I'm going to prepare whatever I want to prepare, but you and I are going to talk about it and come to some shared understanding about what it is we're agreeing to make. So stories get their name from from the fact that we're supposed to be telling stories or talking with each other. So what makes something a story is using it that way, not writing it that way. Does that make sense? That makes sense. So can you give me an example of what one of these user stories might look like? Yeah, duh, well, it's, uh, it's even the way you just asked that is weird. Uh, it's like, uh, can you give me an example of what that song looks like? <laughs> well, you, you, it doesn't look like anything. It looks like a conversation. <laughs> it looks like a few people standing in front of a whiteboard and somebody comes and says, look, I'm thinking of building this. Tell me about this. And we talk with each other. We write a bunch of things on a whiteboard. Uh, we may transcribe it off uh, into notes someplace, but it doesn't look like anything. It may look like a few words uh, on an index card to start with if I've got a stack of these things. But uh, having written down a bunch of stories is like uh, having written down a bunch of music. It doesn't become music until it's played. Stories don't become stories until they're told. Is it my understanding then that what people are referring to commonly when they're referring to user stories is the documentation that they've done around the conversations that they've had? That's right. Yes. And it, look, it's a, it's kind of a, an overloaded term. It's a sort of a mutable term. Um, you know, in the same way that you might refer to, uh, the, the music on your iPod as, uh, your music. It's, uh, again, the music isn't the, the list of songs on the, the iPod. It's what you hear when you play it. Uh, and we'll talk to uh, talk about this backlog of stories is a bunch of stories, but boy, if you just keep them in writing, they're not really stories. Uh, just like uh, music never played isn't really uh, where well, I'm not so sure it is music. Uh, I'm describing this a little abstractly. <laughs> could you could you explain that a little further? How you know if just having the stories written down in a document is not sufficient? 
Yeah. So if, for instance, the, in the story mapping book and in introducing this to other people, I'll talk about the, the epidemic problem or the problem that existed before stories were that people kept trying to write requirements in more precise or better ways. And no matter how hard we try uh, to write them, we still run the risk of misunderstanding each other, of writing too much or too little or being too precise or not being precise enough. So the guy who created the concept of the story is Kent Beck. The the remedy for that is saying, well, let's don't try so hard to write it correctly. Let's instead uh, make sure that we talk to each other, make sure that we talk to each other. Uh, uh, even if we wrote a document, share the document with each other and describe it, make sure that we leave this conversation with this intangible state of shared understanding. So it's the way we use stories that makes them stories. If you guys have been around a while, do you remember the old mantra that a story is a token for a conversation? Yes. And that's exactly what it is. Uh, the story card is actually the token for the conversation. And using stories, well, that's the conversation. And and it's this intangible state of us being on the same page that happened as a consequence of the conversation. And kind of what goes horribly wrong is people have got a, gotten fixated on, um, well, the story template, the as a type of user I want, uh, so that template. And they work really hard to write them that way. When in fact, it's that's not the important part. The important part is that we got together and talked about using our product, what they're trying to do with it and why. And well, maybe writing it that way might help you get your thoughts in order before that conversation. And reading that story might help to start the conversation, but boy, there's a lot more to it uh, that comes up in that conversation other than just the things in that template. So I want to go back to that template here for a second, because I'm not sure that everybody will be familiar with that ah. necessarily. Um, we especially have worked with you know, a lot of clients where this is their first time building a product, You know, they have some other sort of domain experience, and they've never done anything even remotely like this. So that story template that you're talking about is you know, an actor does action so that outcome, right? And it's kind of this Mad Lib style where you fill in, you know, yes. as a user, I sign up with email so that I can use the service, you know, very, very simple one. And so what you're saying then is that this template, everybody is so focused on getting that right. And, you know, I, I think maybe that could be for a bunch of different reasons, certainly because a lot of software likes to work that way. So as you're mapping out stories and planning you know, sprints that you're doing, you've got this template that you're working in. But what you're saying is that the act of trying to figure out what it is that we all mean and come to this shared understanding is the crucial component of writing, <laughs> not even writing, but telling user stories. Yeah, using stories. Uh, it's using, it's the, the act of collaborating together to get on the same page. That, that's, what, that's what using stories is about. I'll tell people that, look, whatever mechanism you were using to document requirements before, keep using it. It's okay. Just name all the parts you want to build, uh, call them stories, show up and pull out that traditional requirements document and sit down and talk together about it. I promise you when you talk together about those traditional hand, traditional written requirements that you'll find that, uh, you know, by coming to some shared understanding that you'll end up changing the way that they're written. And actually, if even people take those traditional requirements back, now they'll actually understand them because you had this conversation, because you treated them as a story, not as a, a, a document handoff. 
it sounds like you're saying this is not a one-way conversation where somebody no. from like a different department hands you a bunch of requirements. This is a two-way conversation where yeah, you're all in the same room and conversing yeah. about what's going on. Yeah, I'm listening to the way you said that. What a one-way conversation isn't a conversation, is it? <laughs> if only one person speaks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because we're having a conversation now, but if uh, I was the only one talking, that wouldn't work. Or you were, that wouldn't be a conversation. Right. And I mean, the whole point of this conversation is for us, at least the three of us having the conversation right now, is to come to that shared understanding. So. Yeah. It's funny. It's a really abstract concept, that it's and it's really a little counterintuitive because we don't have a way to uh, an easy way to talk about it. Because yeah, we do write stories down. We do build a list of things. Uh, uh, we do have these conversations and agree with each other on what we're going to build, and we do build them. And we say, okay, great, we built that thing. We built that story, and we talk about it like it's a it's a thing, but it's it's an activity. It's it's something. If we're doing it right, it's because we actually told the stories and we got on the same page about what it is we're building. And if we had simply written this stuff down, emailed it to someone else and they read it and built it, that wouldn't be using stories. So that would be, be using traditional requirements. <laughs> did your motivation for writing your book then come from this frustration of seeing people doing exactly what you just described, writing out requirements and emailing it around to each other? Yeah. Well, no, actually, uh, so the book is called Story Mapping, and I'm known for this concept. And actually, if I look back years ago, I set out to write a book on this story mapping thing. So one of the things that's true about stories is, or look, if we, again, the story refers to they were using it, and we, what we were writing down in a story is our idea about what we should build. The problem with the ideas that we have to build software is they can be really big. And Ideally, we want to build software in, in small pieces, and we have this problem of getting from really big things to really small things. And what I use is this practice called story mapping. It, all it means is if I come to you with a really big idea and I want to break it down into really small ideas, the way we go about doing that is by telling the story, uh, by telling this big story. And as we tell the story, look, if we tell the story about what somebody's doing with our product, and I say, they start by doing this, and then they do this, and then they do this. And every time I said the word this, I kind of write down each one of those steps and put that in a row. Uh, well, then I've got this story that's broken down into small parts. And then if it if I stop at every one of those steps and we drop down and go into a lot more details and I break those parts down into smaller parts, we end up with, you know, I'm waving my hands and big gestures here. I'm sure you can't see them, but we end up with this simple two-dimensional model that left to right tells a story and top to bottom breaks it down into parts. And now we, where we might've started with a big idea, now we have a whole bunch of little parts and we basically got from big stories to small stories by telling stories. Uh, there's something fun and recursive about that. We told stories to get stories, if that makes sense. I set out to write a book to describe story mapping, but uh, what I ran into very quickly was people thought of stories as these, well, these written things. And uh, I had to sort of correct the record. I had to set the record straight about what stories really meant. So the book is kind of about two things. It's about this practice called story mapping, 
but it's about reminding people why stories are called that and how they're really supposed to be used. So this concept of story mapping that you're talking about then, what's interesting to me about it is the use of the word map. And thinking about it, at least when I was reading your book, and so this is funny actually, I didn't realize until I think yesterday, was it Venkat? Was it yesterday that I just Yeah, that was yesterday. Okay, so I had bought your book a few weeks ago, I think, um, because I was planning to do this whole story mapping process for something, and I felt like, you know, maybe I haven't really understood as much as I wanted to understand about this. So I was reading your book, preparing to go out and do story mapping for a new project, and didn't realize until yesterday that you, who we were interviewing, is the exact same person who wrote this book that I'm reading. Um, (laughs) Well, that's uh, good. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) Lucky coincidence. That's either very good or very bad of me, but... (laughs) But, you know, I'm, I'm reading this, and I'm I'm thinking about the map in kind of a new way than I was before. And I don't know what it was about the way that my brain worked and the way that I thought about user stories, but I always saw things as kind of like isolated chunks. And Venkat has certainly helped me get away from that. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's good. I'm sorry. I can't, I'm listening. I'm gushing. It's no, that's the problem. I think in terms of products and I want to build in little chunks, but look, you know, products are bigger things. Anyway, go on. Right. Yeah. I mean, for me, I guess, you know, I just kind of gotten the habit of looking at tasks on a task list and it was hard for me to break away from that mental model and get to this idea of building this narrative, really, of telling... Wow, I'm getting very recursive again in describing this, but in telling the user's story as they make this journey from some sort of beginning with my product to some sort of outcome, some sort of end. Um, And so this idea of mapping is uh, really interesting to me. Is Is that how you see it? Yep, that's exactly how I see it. It's a, it, I, I want it to be a dead simple thing. It's you know, I start the book with these what are two key points for me, this notion of shared understanding that it's us talking together and building the same mental model, not building a, a document. And the other key point I start with is this difference between output, what we build, and outcome, what happens when things come out. You know, it, for instance, when we talk about requirements, we'll use the term capability to do something. But if you build the capability to do something in your product and no one does it, that's a bad outcome. If you build the capability to do something and people do it and they hate it, that's a bad outcome. A good outcome is if they do it and like it. So I want people to think in terms of these outcomes. That's where the real value is. And you don't build enough software to get a really good outcome if you're breaking things down into little tiny parts. Uh, people, we have to think of that whole journey. We have to think of uh, uh, doing enough work that, uh, or basically, we have to think of it from the, the outside in, from the user's perspective uh, in, and we have to think through what's their journey that gets them to an outcome that, that really is valuable to them. So yeah, that's that's the big message there is to think from that level in and I'm lost my way here. <laughs> well, something that just struck me as you were talking about this actually is um I'm not sure if you're familiar with Samuel Hulick's work on user onboarding as of late uh but he Oh, I'm not. Tell me about that. <laughs> okay, so he's started basically breaking down how other companies do onboarding and just marking up their products saying, you know, this is sort of where I got lost and confused and, you know, really trying to get people to think more about onboarding as something that is 
part of what your product is rather than an afterthought, which, you know, what it sounds like to me is that what you're saying is that often because of the way that we break things down into tasks, we end up in this really bad situation where not only is user onboarding an afterthought, but almost kind of the entire customer journey is an afterthought. afterthought. Exactly. Uh, uh, You end up with this uh, Frankenware, this uh, product assembled from dismembered parts. And it's no surprise that it doesn't come together in any kind of useful holistic piece, useful holistic product, because we immediately took whatever vision we had and ran it through the shredder into lots of little parts and then organized them by priority and tried to reassemble it into a product. And the the people building the product never saw the whole big picture. So it's not surprising what they come up with. And look, the the, the vision for our product changes over time. Yeah, the, the idea with story mapping is people think of the product holistically. They, you know, once you arrange all these sticky notes on a wall or cards on a wall and you start thinking, of the product holistically, there are a lot of different strategies you can apply to identify smaller subsets of your vision to release, smaller viable products that make sense. And uh, you can't get at concepts like a minimum viable product uh, without having a sense of the whole or a sense of the product, which is more than one individual story. Yeah, I'm thinking of products now almost as, or at least some of the, you know, poorer products in terms of onboarding that I'm thinking of as sort of like widgets and components that have been clutched together onto a page and I'm just dumped into it and expected to figure out how they're supposed to work together. Yeah, you can almost feel the way that they were built sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I've definitely seen more than enough projects with large backlogs of little tasks and you just can't see the forest from the trees. Yeah. Can you tell us the the story of how you helped Gary from Mad Mimi get clarity on what he was doing? Yeah, yeah, that's the story of the book. It's, it's uh, look, I've worked with a lot of startups over over the years, and I've worked with a wide variety of people. But I keep retelling Gary's story because first off, because I got a good picture of him the day that we worked together. Um, and, and so it's a good picture and Gary's got a nice grin on his face. So that makes him look good. And it's a big, uh, bunch of cards sprayed out on the floor. So it looks like it's, uh, looks cool. But look, uh, Gary was a, a studio musician that had an idea for a product. He was a studio musician and he had bands that he managed and he had this idea for a music industry marketing interface or Mimi for short. He had a fairly big vision for the product and he got a hold of all the money he could. He hired somebody that's a fairly, uh, is a very strong developer, somebody who's a, an author and has written multiple books and hired some smart people to build this stuff for him. They told him they were working in an agile way, uh, which meant that, look, uh, we're going to, Build a create a list of stuff you want built, Gary, and we'll build things a little bit at a time. And they started doing this, and uh, weeks went by, and stuff got built. And uh, Gary was excited at first, but over time, well, 
Gary saw this is taking a long time. This is not, the product is not materializing out of all these parts. And Gary started complaining. He started saying this agile stuff does not work. The person he was working with called me and said, can you go help Gary out? I showed up and we started talking and we really talked face to face. We really delivered on that original promise of stories. Uh, you know, my first conversations with him were, were about that big root story. What is your big idea? I did the who, what and why for that. Who is this product for? And it isn't just one person. It doesn't fit nicely into an as a. Uh, there's a whole bunch of people to talk about. We uh, we talk about who these people are, why they use it, and why he as an organization wants to pay to build this thing. We drive down deeper into the individuals and what specifically they want to do. And then we Gary starts telling a longer story about the way they would use the product from beginning to end. And that's what that map is, sprayed out on the floor. Uh, it's easy to see. But at the end of the day, Gary looked at this and is, he's shocked. He's got a much clearer vision of his product than he ever had before. And he's a combination of uh, surprise that after a few hours we got there and ticked off because after having seen this, the product he started building isn't the product he really wanted to build anymore. He couldn't afford to build the big vision uh, he had originally started to build because once we sprayed all this out on the floor, Gary saw it's a lot bigger than I ever thought it was. And if we build a subset of this thing, that's going to be viable. And well, Gary had kind of shred everything he had built up until now and restart. So that was, you know, good news and bad news for Gary. Why were things taking longer than expected at the point when he came to you? Good question. It's not that things were taking longer than expected. It's, well, the Gary didn't know how long they should take. And look, uh, imagine, uh, I, I think and speak in metaphors, uh, uh, what are the old, the, the old joke, the, you know, how do you eat an elephant, uh, one bite at a time? Uh, Gary didn't know he was eating an elephant, uh, or, uh, taking this big product down and breaking it down into parts. And it's only after chewing on part after part after part, Gary started to realize, man, this thing is an elephant. And in hindsight, he said, gosh, had I have known this was an elephant, I would have probably toned it down to uh, maybe a trout or something smaller or something I could bite off. Looking at a list of items in a backlog didn't give Gary a real idea of the size of the product he was working with. Right. And I actually, I really love in your book, the use of the illustration of the car being built. Where That's you... a Henry Berg's illustration. So I you know, gave him credit there, but yeah, he, if you were to look for it, that's a good one to look at. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, you've got this idea of like, you've got these wheels coming together and then maybe you have a couple doors coming onto the car. And I, I know for somebody that, is really excited about the vision behind things, seeing just a couple of wheels and like a s scrap of door, like <laughs> it's not very exciting. You know, yeah. that is not what they anticipated at all. So yeah. are you advocating for this notion of getting to smaller, more bite-sized chunks instead of having this couple wheels like you, you have in that illustration, you've got maybe the skateboard or something instead? Here, let me, well, actually let me, I'll, uh, 
Let me add one more thing to the Gary story, and then let me do that. The you, you should look up Mad Mimi. The, the Gary's product, Mad Mimi, did get bought by GoDaddy at the tail end of 2014. You know, Gary actually, of all startups, he did get that thing launched. It really did turn into a really great product. It morphed into something very different than he started with. But you know what's interesting is uh, after that day of story mapping, you know, all the morphing happened that day. He really did build what we mapped that day. Uh, although the details of it morphed a lot, but his vision changed significantly once he saw the whole thing. Uh, grew the company up to fairly large and uh, got bought out by GoDaddy, and Gary's doing really well. Inside of GoDaddy, he's thought of as a a, a product expert. But, I, you know, I have to remind myself the guy was a studio musician when I met him. <laughs> uh, so, anyway. Uh, well, but actually, that- so, sorry. Was the product that, like, the roadmap that you came up with, this, like, significantly different than what was there originally, what was being worked yeah. It was significantly different. So look, it, let me. Uh, this is going to sound like a tangent, but I, I first did this trick with a uh, maybe. Uh, okay, look in classes. I'll do this. Uh, I'll say, look, uh, I'll pull some a, a water. I first did this with uh, somebody uh, at a bar in the evening that I was getting tired of arguing about this with. <laughs> uh, came out of probably drinking one too many, but. Uh, look, uh, in the context of classes these days, I will pull a $20 bill out of my wallet and say, look, uh, if this is your big idea. This is the value of your big idea. Uh, and if you were to build this whole thing, it's going to give you this return on investment, this, you know, 20 bucks, this tangible value. Now, your first job is to decompose this down into smaller parts, and then I'll pull more money out of my wallet. I'll pull a a 10 and two fives out, and I'll say, look, now this, I've taken this $20 idea, and let's, let's make change for it, and uh, I'll give them a 10 and two fives, and now, if I were to build this, uh, I could build the $5 bill first. And then the next $5 bill and then the next dollar bill and the, and the $10 bill and each one of them has value. Make sense so far? Yes, absolutely. I absolutely. I should have had you pull the money out of your wallet so you can do this because now here comes the other part. I said, well, but look, the $5 bill is too big. And then I will grab the $5 bill and I will start ripping it into pieces. And I'll say, okay, this, this is a product backlog. These are the pieces. And uh, then I'll slide the ripped up shreds of $5 bill to somebody and say, can you prioritize these for me by business value? <laughs> can you tell me which one, if we're running out of time, which one of these can you do without? And I'll tell you, look, if you were to, this is why when you ask a business stakeholder which ones they can do without or what's the priority of this versus that, they'll look at you kind of puzzled and bugged. There's no value in those pieces of $5 bill. There's only value when they're all summed together. Now, the trick here is uh, you can either take a $20 idea and start ripping it up into shreds or you can break it down into smaller viable parts like $5 ideas, break them into smaller parts that you can build. What Gary had done is taken the $20 idea and started building parts of it. What we did together was to figure out how to break that big idea that he could not afford to build into smaller ideas that were still viable and then break those down further into buildable parts. You with me after all that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. That's what I see people doing really wrong when they think of products and backlogs is they take really big ideas, break them down into lots of little parts and say, hey, look, I'm being agile. Uh, they try and eat their elephants one bite at a time instead of trying to 
well, I'm screwing up my metaphor here. Instead of trying to break them down into smaller animals before they start eating them. <laughs> this is a terrible metaphor. <laughs> never work. <laughs> so it looks like Gary started out with, when you started working with him, he, he just had a massive backlog. What was it about the conversation between you and Gary that took him from giant backlog to, wait a minute, I don't even want to be building this. I want to be building this completely different thing. Yeah. Well, it wasn't completely different. It was a subset of what. Okay. A subset. Okay. Yeah. It was a subset. And frankly, it was just a matter of seeing the physical weight of all those cards uh, on the floor. And what's true is when I start taking a story apart by describing a user's journey, it ends up being a lot more cards. Because, you know, you've seen this before, if you guys have worked in an agile process before, where people can write a story uh, and jam it into that user story format. Oh, look, I just left a client yesterday, uh, and on one three-by-five card, uh, they wrote, uh, you know, they were making instruments for scientists to measure, measure water saturation in uh, food products. And uh, look, in one story card, they can say, as a QA person that tests water uh, saturation, saturation level in food. I want to know what the, the saturation is in this food sample so that I can, you know, do the necessary compliance testing. Look, it's one, it's, look, it's one card, but it's months of work. <laughs> so, right. I mean, that would be like us having this conversation on Skype and then like the creators of Skype saying, as a user, I want to be able to audio yeah. and video conference with somebody else. Yeah. So that, so that's the problem is, yeah, Gary had a, fairly small backlog in terms of the number of items he had. It's just that every one of those items was, if you actually had the story conversation about it or actually thought it through, they were a lot bigger than he thought and a lot bigger than the developer he was working with because they had, uh, yeah, I guess, not gone into much detail about the conversations with them. Gary, they'd read those stories and they had imagined what they imagined. by. So, yeah, and I'm glad you asked it the way you did. The problem with the people he was working through is they'd had some conversations with Gary. Uh, they might have read a little bit or saw a little bit, but, well, they did not have shared understanding. What Gary was imagining isn't what the developers who were building it were imagining. And it was, a, uh, so they couldn't give him proper guidance about how big it really was. They just weren't on the same page. And Look, that's the real promise we're supposed to be delivering on with stories. It's uh, it's by really talking with each other. The, you know, look, the story is done when we get it, when we are singing from the same hymnal, where uh, uh, we're uh, of the same mind. The, that's when the storytelling has been successful. So this notion of breaking things down and having some sort of smaller product that you can get to. We've all, of course, heard a lot about MVP or minimum viable product. Is this... That's the most abused term in the, <laughs> in the world, in so, the market right now. <laughs> so I really, I, I really want to know what your take on what an MVP is. So in the book, I'll hit this. There are like any... look If you look up on most English words in the dictionary, you'll find multiple definitions. So this one has multiple definitions. The original definition of MVP, when the term was coined a long time ago, and I'd have to uh, used to know who originally coined the term, and I'd have to do some research to look it back up again. But it really meant minimum viable product. It meant a product that I could ship into the market that was viable. 
and it was uh, it was as small as it could be, but still be viable. Now, viable, like if you talk about viable for a newborn infant, means it can survive in the world without dying. Viable for a product means it can survive in the world without dying. If you deliver a product in the world and people say, well, that's interesting, but I don't want it, that means it died. That's not good. So viable means it's good. Viable means it's successful. So a minimum viable product is the smallest product I could deliver that is successful. But there's a problem with that original definition of minimum viable product. And it's, you know, I'll talk about the the outcome is what happens when things come out. Problem with saying this is my minimum viable product is you don't know if it's viable until it comes out. You can't know if it was viable until you actually build it and ship it and say, ah, that wasn't viable or that was viable. So the first definition was the smallest product that would be viable. Then Lean Startup came along and said, look, there's a problem with that definition. Eric Ries described building a product that they thought was going to be viable and realizing that when it hit the market, it was not. And they had to start really focusing on figuring out what was viable. And they did this by coming up with smaller experiments or smaller things that they could deliver to the market, observe whether people were using them, and then pull them back and iterate and test. So Eric Reese redefined minimum viable product to mean the smallest thing I could possibly build to validate an assumption about my product. With me so far? Yes, absolutely. You actually, you wrote that it was a MVPE, really. Yeah. So these days I will use the term minimal viable product hypothesis to indicate this is my hypothesis about the product that will be viable in the market and MVP experiment or MVP test to say this is the smallest thing I could build to test an element of my hypothesis. So those are my two definitions. What I think the product is that will be successful, that's my MVP hypothesis, and the smallest, littlest thing I could do to test my hypothesis. Now, there is a third definition of MVP, and this is the crap definition that everyone uses. They use this uh, third definition is it's kind of the crappiest thing I could possibly build that still sort of works. <laughs> right. It is way too small to actually be viable in the market. It's not good enough to be viable, and it's much, much bigger than it needs to be to be just a test or an experiment. So it's just right in this, you know, what's the the old three bears thing where it's a, it's neither. (laughs) Yeah, again, too small to be viable, really viable, and too big to be an experiment. And you usually never targeted it trying to prove anything in particular, just that we can build some software that could be used. Right. And you say that often uh, people use this as a way to make excuses for making really poor product decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. People, you know, the trick to the thing, things like minimum and viable is you can tell that both words like minimum and viable are both subjective terms. And if we don't have some agreement on who our customers and users are and what they're trying to accomplish and what success is for them, then we can't possibly make a judgment about what minimum and viable means. And that's, and now we're back full circle. That's what story maps are about. They're about us thinking through things from our customers and users perspective. They're about us, you know, we use story maps to put together our hypothesis about who will use our product and what they will do with our product. And uh, instead of, you know, writing these little cards about what users, what we think users want, we actually think it through a little bit more and and imagine how they will use 
imagine how they'll use this product and by spraying it all out on the wall or on the floor like that, we can actually better decide whether that looks viable to us. We can build better hypotheses. So you've said before that before you build the MVP, you want to build something less than minimal. Why is this? Yeah, so it's funny. There's there's that weird, stupid, recursive definition. Uh, you have to build MVP tests or to figure out if your MVP, your actual product, is viable. So you have to build MVPs in order to figure out if you've got a good MVP. Uh, if that makes sense. The, the way MVP tests are not viable products, well, they're just tests. They're less than viable. And you build them with the intention of of learning. Well, you you don't know for sure. Sure, you build something that's less. Well, to learn something, to see if it's viable and how far off you are. Now, it's funny. There's a lot of different testing strategies. For instance, I can build little tiny things to test little tiny ideas, like a landing page test, where I put a landing page up that describes a product, and if people express interest in it by saying I'd like to buy it or I'd like to sign up to receive notifications about when it's uh, ready, that tests a value hypothesis. But as we move forward, where we really feel like we've got a good idea, uh, one of the strategies is to actually build a product that actually does work, but tone it down. Build something that is just enough, barely works, would be kind of crappy, and deliver it to people that will use the product, and from them you can learn. Now, uh, I'll ask this as a, as a trick question in teaching things. You know, if you were going to deliver a product that you knew was not going to be viable or you knew that people were not going to love, who would you deliver it to? So, n- not rhetorical. Who would you guys deliver a product to if you knew that they weren't going to love it? I don't know. I don't think I'd deliver that to anyone. My worst enemies. <laughs> no, your best friends, your early adopters. Textbook definition of an early adopter, people that will buy product that's a little jankety, that's a little rough. They want to be first. They want to, they're interested in trying things out. They're interested in giving feedback. They're interested in being first. It's the, those early majority and late majority people that kind of want proof that it's a good product. You know, do you guys know anybody that has bought or tried to work with 3D printers yet? Uh, yes, I do. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you say that with a tone in your voice. Have you done this? <laughs> Yeah, in fact, I mean, there's even a 3D printer at the San Diego Public Library. <laughs> so, um. Ah, okay, so that's what, oh, so you've worked with one. But look, so I've run into people that bought kits for where they had to build the 3D printer themselves. They had to <laughs> solder stuff together and put it in an enclosure. And I've asked them, uh, did it work? And they said, well, sort of, and it wasn't very good. Those are early adopters. They bought a product that they knew was not really viable. And look, you, you meet these people all the time that have uh, uh, garages full of gadgets. They're the first ones to buy something. But those are the people you want to deliver a product to. But you want to – those are the people – the product companies I work with will use the term CDP for customer development partners. Those are the people you want to deliver a product to and iterate with and iterate until it's uh, the term used by – I'm trying to remember her, who I first heard say this, but you iterate until awesome. Iterate with those people that are friendly people that will use stuff in rough conditions until it's awesome enough to release to those people that are a lot less tolerant. Yeah, it does. You know, as you pose the question to me, it does sound really counterintuitive yes. to think about putting, you know, 
the crappiest possible version of your product in front of the uh, users that would love you most. I would stop short of say crappiest possible, but uh, right. uh, yeah. <laughs> So back to Henrik Nieberg's example of, you know, you hinted at it, people should look it up, but uh, he shows this progression of going from a skateboard to a scooter to a bicycle to a motorcycle to a car. Look, if you know somebody needs a good transportation device to get to work, handing them a skateboard is not really a good idea. It's not a, you know, if they've got any distance to travel and yeah, it may be better than walking, but it's not good. But look, if you're going to give somebody a skateboard, give them a good skateboard. If you've got a choice between giving them a good skateboard and a really crappy bicycle, give them a good skateboard. Uh, don't deliver crap. Uh, there's another pithy phrase that I like uh, that comes out of the lean startup community or comes from well, a few different sources, but uh, be scrappy, not crappy. And yeah, be scrappy. Deliver, find something smaller to deliver, but don't deliver a crappy thing. Right. That's a really good way of looking at it. So going back to building these products for the first time, we talked about you know trying to estimate what the length of time is going to take for this product to be finished. You know, maybe we can talk about Gary as an example. Why is it so difficult then to put a time estimate on when software will be done? It's a, you guys are not new to software development. You've got people that are, will be listeners to this that are software developers. First off, estimation in general is fraught with problems. Look, uh, I'll go back to when I was managing development teams. And if I had a team of five guys uh, one of the guys was really white hot. He was good. If I asked him to tackle something, he could get it done in about a half a day. If I was uh, thinking of a, of a feature or a thing, there are a couple other guys on the team that if you ask them to do the same thing, it might take them a day or two, maybe three if they were struggling a little bit. And then there's always that one guy on your team where if you uh, ask him to do it, and he'll work all week long on it. And then at the end of the week, uh, if he's still struggling, you'll ask the smart guy to help him out and they'll get it done together or the smart guy will take it from him. So for the same piece of functionality, it may take anywhere between a half day or five days or never, depending on how good the developer is. <laughs> First off, full stop there, asking developers to build something is so much depends on their skill and uh, their past experience, their domain knowledge, all kinds of things. So that makes estimation really unpredictable to begin with. And then if you're talking about building a product that you've never built before, which pretty much all software is, no one rebuilds the same software over and over. Well, even if they think they are, uh, they're rebuilding it in a new platform in a new language or something else. There's always uncertainty there. We never know quite what we're building. Right. Uh, if, if you're trying to build a whole new product, you, you, it emerges and you, you see it emerge. Uh, so anyway yeah even even like the samware brothers who are building pinterest clones and things of that nature still are learning things that only the pinterest team could have discovered right yeah you know, people look at software and talking about process a lot uh we we just especially when it comes to software we've got this screwed up mental model uh, for building software we imagine software process to be a lot like an assembly line where people are mass producing the same stuff over and over and in fact putting stories into a backlog where every item is the same size kind of makes us 
makes us kind of feel like it's an assembly line, like because it's one story. We start to fool ourselves into believing we can predict how long these things are going to take. And frankly, when we do start breaking things down into small bite-sized things where we've had a lot of detailed conversations uh, about them, where we're, we can start to become a lot more predictable, but it takes a lot of conversation and we have to really narrow our focus to building one small thing. We can predict small things. You know, I can predict what's going to happen in the next 10 minutes, but I cannot predict what's going to happen uh, in the 10-minute block uh, uh, 10 days from now. We can predict things in the short term. And uh, where am I going with this? Uh, your original question is, why is it so hard to estimate? Uh, it just is. And when it comes to working with big products, I abandon all planning poker and all kinds of things. And if you're working with a product from the outset, if you were going to remodel your kitchen and uh, you wanted to redo the countertops, who would you guys call for an estimate? Would you get 10 random carpenters and have them play planning poker? Uh, no. <laughs> I mean... Real- or would you find a competent carpenter who has done this stuff before, has done a lot of kitchens before, and can look at your kitchen and say, ah, that looks like it's a similar to one I've done before, and I think it could be about this. Right, that's exactly right. Yeah, I mean... The same is true of like getting a car repair done or something like that. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm not going to take my Mazda Miata to a BMW repair shop or something because they're going to have no idea how long that's going to take or what it's going to cost. I mean, aside from this, the fact that I don't really want a BMW guy working on my Mazda, you know, <laughs> uh, it, uh, there still is something to be said for that. Bringing something to somebody that has no past experience building anything even remotely like what you want and expecting yeah. them to come up with a realistic estimate certainly doesn't sound very realistic. No, no. It's a, yeah. So yeah, for looking at something big from the outset, uh, that, that's bigger, I'll usually look to uh, senior people that have worked on stuff like this before. And I'll look for a couple of those people to collaborate on a, I will trust their high level gut estimate a lot as being a lot more sound than breaking things down into lots of small stories and planning pokering my way through all those things. That that ends up with just absolute trash. <laughs> I don't know. I've seen lots of big projects break big things down into lots of small stories and do kind of an agile by the book approach, uh, estimating all these small stories, and they just end up with just nonsense. It never quite works out. So switching gears a little bit, you have an interesting take on scope creep. You say yeah. scope doesn't creep, understanding grows. What yes. do you mean by that? Uh, so, so this is the uh, yeah one of the most retweeted, uh, tweeted and retweeted uh, quotes in the book. I get frustrated with terms like scope creep or bad requirements or all those other terms that arise from people building software without really understanding what they're building. People will start building product with a shallow understanding of it. They build something, they show it to the person who want it, uh, wants it, and they say, no, that's not it. It's more like this. And no, it needs to be able to do that. And the person who built it will say, ah, that's scope creep. You added something to it. And if you've ever been on 
the other side of this conversation, you were saying, well, no, I tried to say that. I thought you already understood that. And basically, these people didn't have shared understanding going into it. It's oftentimes what we call scope creep is us finally figuring out what that person was talking about. Or even together, we start building a product and we think it's going to be simple. And when we start getting into the details of it, we start to realize, oh, it's a lot more difficult or sophisticated than I thought. And it's not that scope crept, it's that we, our understanding is increasing. And yeah, there is honest to goodness scope creep where people try and slip stuff in that they didn't tell you about before. But most of the time, these are, it's honest people working together that are trying to figure this stuff out and they're figuring out stuff along the way. And that's what I mean by understanding growing. You know, when you say that too, that it's honest people working together, it's funny because I've seen these sorts of conversations become very combative quickly. And it's really unfortunate because it's obvious to an outsider that both people have the best intentions about the product. You know, you've got the domain expert, the product owner on the one side who's just wanting to get what they originally had in mind built. And then you have, you know, the developers or the implementers on the other side who were given a budget and were given a deadline. And now all of a sudden this change in understanding is throwing everything off. And they're both trying to make sure that we get done what we had intended to get done. It's just that the intention was obviously very different. Yeah. So this is why... You know, maybe coming back full circle, you know, we talked about Gary's story and uh, I know the people that were the developers in this and I know that they had good intentions and I know they're competent people, but they had stopped short of really getting a good understanding of what Gary was trying to accomplish before they dove in and started building. They had a little bit too much faith and I see a lot of people have a little bit too much faith in this agile promise of if I just start building things in little parts, everything will work out okay. And it doesn't. We learn a lot as we go. And I find a lot of situations where we learn late and had we have just had a little bit deeper conversation earlier on, we could have learned earlier. And for the people who do this, uh, there's some negligence. Uh, I can see the people who asked for something, uh, finding out later that it's going to cost three, four, five, ten times more than they originally thought. I can see them justifiably being frustrated because the people they asked just didn't ask very deep questions. They could have asked better questions. And that's where the story mapping thing comes in. Story mapping kind of forces us to Go a little bit deeper. It forces us to really consider things, consider what will happen when things come out. How will people use this product? It, it, it allows for us to have a better discussion about things and hopefully it uh, stops that whole scope. It, nothing will stop understanding growing over time. But gosh, for me, it's, it's helped us really spot problems a lot earlier on than we would have otherwise. Well, Jeff, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. Anybody who really wants to read this book, I definitely recommend it. Um, We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Can you tell us where we can keep up with you online? 
I'm at jpattonassociates.com. What a mouthful of a URL. I wish I had a shorter one, but uh, look, everything short was taken. And I have an old website that's out there, and I think pretty much everything is moved off of agileproductdesign.com into jpattonassociates.com. And it, it's funny. I've been so busy over the past several years. At least I got a, got the dumb book written, but uh, I'll working hard to start uh, getting more blogs and more essays and more articles out there as I as I write up, but you'll find more things at jpattonassociates.com. And you're uh, at Jeff Patton on Twitter, is that right? Yes, yeah. Okay, excellent. We'll put both those in the show notes as well. Yeah, actually, Twitter's a good baby. Follow me on Twitter. Okay, <laughs> <Sounds good. laughs> All right, well, thanks again, Jeff. Thanks, Thank man. you. Great to talk to you guys. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Talking Code Podcast. If you haven't yet, make sure to sign up for our mailing list at talkingcode.com. If you liked this episode, please be sure to open up iTunes and leave us a review. And if you're dying for us to talk about something in particular, go to talkingcode.com slash ask and let us know. We read and respond to every listener question. So even if you just want a little advice, we're here to help.